You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the Christian Feminist Podcast part of our M. Night Shyamalan Halloween crossover. This episode is on The Village. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and you'll hear Christina Bieber-Lake moderate an episode with me and Kim Anderson. ourselves. So Kim, why don't you start? Hi, my name's Kim Anderson, and I have a podcast called Restoration, a creation care podcast, and two children and work for the Evangelical Environmental Network. Great. Thank you so much. Victoria. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, one of the co-founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I have a PhD in Literature and Gender Studies from Florida State, and currently I work for an Atlanta-area startup doing digital community management. Uh, Excited to talk about The Village today, and super excited that I don't have to moderate this episode, because moderating the crossover is interesting, and I have to do it almost every year. Hooray. Well, Victoria, I'm super glad that I took that over that job for you, but you still have to do the boilerplate opening. <laughs> but anyway, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake, and I um, teach English at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. And I actually like this film. Unlike, um, I just found out Victoria is not a huge fan of it, but I'm sure we're going to have a wonderful conversation about uh, about this. And I wanted to start out... <laughs> just about whether what your feelings are in general about it. I just assumed everybody kind of liked it, which is why you signed on. But what do you like? What do you dislike? Victoria, why don't you start since uh, we had a little bit of a little shock between the two of us here. Since my refutation precedes me? Okay. Um, so I picked this because I didn't want to watch one of the super scary Shyamalan movies. Uh, ah. Me too. Yay, wusses unite. Um, and <laughs> wusses al- unite, nice. <laughs> uh, and also because I, I did, I hated this movie when I first saw it when I was a teenager. And I've seen it a couple of times since and have hated it less for various reasons. Um, I know I, I said before we recorded that I want to talk about this movie's vision of disability, um, which as a disabled person I think is super interesting. Um, also, the, the Bryce Dallas Howard performance is, is certainly a standout and, and worthy of comment. Um, but I one thing that sticks out to me that is definitely the reason that I 
immediately didn't like the movie the first time I saw it is that I called the twist pretty early and was was kind of disappointed by it. Uh, so I think that's sort of teenage, you know, angst and, and uh, sarcasm getting ahead of me and coloring my experience. But as an adult, I find particularly the film's vision of history and, and what history does for us um, interesting, especially as someone who uh, was in academia and is no longer anymore. Um, since kind of the it, it's an academic historian who who gets the whole ball rolling, um, but I'll I'll let other people talk. Yeah, well, maybe we should all say how old we were when we first saw it. This is Kim, and I saw it the, for the first time yesterday. So, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, I was not a big fan of what was the was it Signs? Oh, and, I loved. Well. You know, I literally, I hate horror movies, so I literally oh, screamed okay. in the theater a couple of times. Um, and so I didn't really want to see a Shyamalan movie after that, just because I didn't want to be scared out of my pants. But this one did not do that, so. So you first saw it yesterday. Yeah. Okay, wow. I was just assuming people who signed on to talk about this had seen it before and were watching <laughs> it for a second time. So that just kind of rocks my world for our conversation. But I actually think that is a really great, kind of way to have a conversation because we have three totally different perspectives. So to me, to my mind, Victoria, what you were saying really helps us to open my first question, which is the issue of what I call the big reveal. Like there's twists and then there's the big reveal, like plot twists are one thing, but a huge reveal, like in the sixth sense where you know that you can't ever watch the movie again and not know the plot twist, right? Like you can't forget and then come back to it or, you know, mm. it's a little bit different than just like a twist that you might forget. And then later when you're watching it, be like, Oh, I forgot about that. That's not going to happen with the sixth sense. It's not going to happen with the village. So I'm just really interested in the difference uh, between those two. Um, the fact of a, of a plot twist versus a big reveal. And the way that I'd like to ask it is, the difference in the source of your pleasure in the first time watching the film and then a future time watching it. Now, Kim, I didn't realize you'd only seen it the one time. Well, so that's not true. Just because, just because yeah. I saw it for the first time yesterday doesn't mean I didn't watch it more than once. Oh, so. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you are able to talk about this issue of the difference in the source of your pleasure, right? From the first time to the second time. Yeah. And for me, a lot of my, like, the second time that I watched it, I had more pleasure because I enjoyed the the scenery and noticed some themes and that kind of thing. Um, things like how they used color, how nature interacted with these people, um, how they want to protect themselves. Um, and so it was, I could dig deeper into those, and I appreciated it a lot more the second time. It did make it a little less enjoyable because I knew the twist and it was so fresh but so did you figure it out like like uh, victoria no i didn't either when i was first watching it i was actually kind of blown away by it i don't know why i just not as smart as victoria i guess (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't know that i was smart i think i just like assumed that i knew where it was going and it happened to be going that way Because there are a lot of things that I think hit me much differently as an adult than, I I mean, there are lots of things I think I didn't notice as a teenager 
particularly Kim was talking about the visuals, the cinematography yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Deakins is director of photography, um, who he does a lot of the camera work for the Coen Brothers movies, which I think you can feel Brilliant. in some senses a, a similar visual style uh, in terms of, like she said, the, the saturation and what they do with color. Um, and also a lot of the naturalism, uh, which, Kim, I'd like to hear you talk more about what the film does with nature since you mentioned that. Can you say more about that? Well, and for me, it's very intertwined with the theme of color that I noticed. Um, I mean, I've, you've got some obvious things like they don't like red because of the things we do not speak of or the is it things um, those those we do not speak of. Um, and so a lot of the, it's like really bland in general. Even the landscape is pretty bland. The trees aren't shiny. The, I mean, the, the grass is green, but it's for the most part, it sticks to like a pretty simple palette. But then there are exceptions to that, that I, I think really stand out. Um, and so, so I guess for me, the enjoyment of that had a lot more to do with noticing how they use color. And you're right. The cinematography is really just beautiful. It's quite an impressive performance, actually, is uh, from a cinematographer from cinematography and and Shyamalan learned so much from Hitchcock, and it's so obvious in all of his films. But here, mm. the pacing, the the visuals, the eeriness of it, it's just so well done. And so, before you figure out the twist, you're just sort of like, "What's going on here?" You know, and then you're in this kind of period of the 1800s and watching it for this was really only the second time I saw it. And the first time I saw it is when it came out. So there's a big gap in between. And then you're like the tombstone says his death was 1897, right at the beginning. And so all the clues that the, the, what the viewer looks for, for like, what's the setting, whatever they completely throw you off. So you're like, oh, well, it's the 19th century because the tombstone says 1897. And so I just stopped questioning after that. I, I just, you know, I was just like, okay. But to me, that was the, the thing that struck me this time was that the film is showing you that one of the few pleasures that we have as viewers of films nowadays is genre guessing. Like, you don't know what the genre is of the film and you're like, hmm. Is this a horror flick? Is this a mystery? Is this a drama? Is this a, a satire? Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I became very interested in that this time around. Does that make any sense, you guys? Yeah, that's a super mm-hmm. interesting point and one I hadn't thought of. But I do think it lends itself to something that was new to me this time around, which is I realized that a lot of the actors – in this movie are people that I love from other genres who were doing kind of early, early work here. Like every five seconds I was like, Oh, it's Fran Kranz. Oh, it's Jesse Eisenberg. Like, you know, I know it's a star studded cast. Right. Totally. And they are, they are genre actors, as you mentioned, Victoria, like Joaquin Phoenix. Um, Cherry, what's her name? Uh, Cherry Jones. Tony Winner, Cherry Jones. Yeah. Wow. You know, and so you're, as a viewer, you're sitting there going, what kind of film is this? 
how, you know, what am I supposed to make of this? Is this going to be one of those magical realism films about the 18th century, 19th century, or the Puritans or whatever, where it's just like we're going into this community that is trying to set themselves aside. So as somebody who had already been through grad school watching this, I was just like, what, what is this genre? You know, I'm talking about for the first time. And so that's why I didn't figure out the plot, because I couldn't figure out the genre. You know, and I think, Victoria, one of the differences between so your generation is my, and mine, one of the many, <laughs> is that it's like we we just don't assume that it's going to be ironic or kind of a flip. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I, I kind of don't like that that was my initial reaction. And I guess a lot of what I have to respond to that is like, I was 17 and didn't know any better and also hadn't seen that many movies. Like, I feel like I was probably too big for my britches at that point and, you know, kind of being too sure of myself because there are certainly lots of things that I said hit me with more nuance this time around at almost, I guess, almost 35 than uh, the first time I saw the movie, which I would have been 17 or 18. Yeah, but I'm I'm not saying that I'm saying that you are super smart to notice it. I'm just saying that there's a that there's a generational difference in terms of what you were kind of um, primed to expect or look for. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I do think right? as a as a post Gen X millennial, I I am kind of more um, more skeptical and more irony default than than not. Yeah, and that's really what I'm talking about—the kind of irony default—and I'm just. It just that's something that I think is so important to the film in general, not just to the twist, but to the film in general. And so I think that's kind of a good segue to our to the next thing I'd like to talk about, which is, you know, innocence, the question Mm -hmm. of innocence, innocence as a viewer, innocence in the characters. And and boy, isn't Bryce Dallas Howard excellent in this film? I mean, and. Joaquin Phoenix, boy, I was stunned by the performance between these two actors actually this time around. And it really struck me on this issue of innocence. So I just wanted to hear what you guys had to say about it. I think the innocence is definitely a a theme and also kind of going along with that is protection. Like they wanted to be able to protect themselves. And, um, And I think it's interesting... Ivy's sister Kitty seems very innocent and childlike, even though she gets married during the film. Um, and Kitty plays more of almost a motherly role, whereas she's the younger daughter's younger sister, but she comforts Kitty when she's rejected by Lucius. And Lucius also takes on a role. So it's interesting that you have um, a couple of very young people acting more as leaders and less. Um, less innocent um, than people that are older than them. Victoria, what do you think about this theme of innocence? Um, I I think it's interesting that you point to age, Kim, because that was not the first place I went, though that's that's certainly true that Kitty – um, who is the kind of, at, at least on the surface, the kind of flighty sister. And I, 
I hope, I, this might not be true, I might be giving Shyamalan credit that he doesn't deserve, um, but I hope that her name is Kitty because that's a Pride and Prejudice reference. Um, I feel like it could be. Ooh. I want it to be true. Yes. Um, and she she is, you know, flighty and she's romantic and she gets married early um, to Fran Kranz who is playing a version of the typical Fran Kranz character. Um, he's sort of puffed up and uh, very concerned about his shirts being wrinkled. Uh, right. But I, I typically, I assumed, um, be, just because of my own viewpoint, I guess, that um, Ivy is separated from sort of that romance and that flightiness, and she's a typical caretaker um, because her disability takes her out of romantic norms. Mm. That that was kind of the, the social assumption that I um, defaulted to, which, like, in the 19th century would not have been abnormal in terms of particularly disabled women being chosen as uh, kind of hearth keepers and, and caretakers uh, socially, and it would have been if not uh, normal, at least not abnormal, for them to get married later or not or, you know, do a kind of maiden aunt thing. So um, that that was my assumption, but you're right that it's interesting that both um, Lucius and Ivy do that kind of caretaker thing. I just think it's so fascinating because she's obviously a prophetic character, right? A seer a blind mm. seer and so smart and and the William Hurt character Edward I guess is his name her, her father entrusts her with this journey now I don't understand why Edward couldn't go would somebody like to explain why Edward couldn't just go to get the medicine I assumed it was because like if he was seen doing it as an elder that that would be worse than letting his daughter go okay i don't it just yeah. it just seemed kind of crazy like like he it is just a weird out right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> since since there are so many things that could go wrong with her plan to kind of just escape out of the <laughs> uh-huh. right like so many things could go wrong with that but then you have this romantic edge of like well love will win and they're in love and they'll figure it out and i was just like what are you talking about but but on the other hand, the film also is constantly celebrating this kind of innocence that's a pre-ironic innocence. And that's what I was driving at with asking this question right now. Because that scene where they're there on the porch, um, Lucius and Ivy, and they're deciding to be married, it was actually quite moving to me. Mm-hmm. Even when I knew the plot and in a way that most love scenes are not. And I was trying to figure out why was this moving to me? And I realized it's because it's not ironic. It's not simulacra that these two really actually believe that they're in this community and there's no TVs, right? There was something about that that was restorative to me. And I I would like to investigate that. I do think it's beautiful that it's completely sincere. And I think part of that beauty comes from the fact that they both know and and admit that the expectation is for them to sacrifice 
and they like right. really weigh that communal expectation. Like it's actually important to them in a way that fe- that felt authentic and not cheesy to me. Like, yeah. Because I, I do feel like we all as people have to, it's not exactly in that way, but we all kind of as adults have to make decisions where we are weighing other people's expectations of who we are and how we should act against how we want to act, whether that be religion or politics or community in a different way or family. You know, I think we all kind of have to make those choices and that did feel it it felt really human and and nuanced and messy in an interesting way kim do you have a thought about that because that scene it really it just struck me for the reasons that victoria was saying and um and, and i was just trying to figure out that for me it was something about its being separated away from all the screens all the social media all the posing all the irony of our mm-hmm. culture and, and in, in a way that he was saying, I'm trying to recover some of that and give you a little feel of that thrill as an audience. Um, yeah, I, I did think that scene was very beautiful and moving. And I think in comparison to Kitty and um, I forget the name of the guy she married, but yeah. in comparison to that relationship, I mean, Kitty it's almost like she was just grasping at straws trying to find somebody to love. Whereas I think Lucius and Ivy at that moment already knew that they loved each other, but this was the first time they talked about it. Um, so even though it's in a protected world, it, it was very moving in a way that like the kitty love wasn't. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about that protected world because so much of the film seems to me very American, like a critique of the American. Well, once you figure out that it is actually a critique and not some kind of throwback, but the American tendency to demonize the other as a way to protect or build community struck me as one of the main themes of the film. And when I was really thinking about it was early on when you hear, and again, after you know what the plot twist is, you hear different kids in the community talking to each other about the towns, and they say something like, they are wicked places where wicked people live. That's all. You know, so we don't want to talk about it anymore. They're other. They're wicked. We're here. We're good. And the cost of our community is to demonize the other. This is something that I've taught multiple times in all of my classes is a particularly American, like this is not only in America, but we love it in America, that demonizing of the other. So I just wanted to hear what you guys thoughts were about that with regard to this film. Well, one thing is not only was the other demonized, but also they, you know, in terms of the towns, but they also created monsters to Mm -hmm. make it even less likely that somebody would escape. And they, the creation of that and the way that they, drew it out with the dead animals and the, um, the ceremonies and, and hiding in the cellar and all those things. I mean, they made that so real to these people. You would have never guessed that it wasn't, I mean, if you were living there, that it wasn't true. Um, and so they're afraid of the town, but they created another monster to hate as well Mm -hmm. to protect them even further. And, And they make the kids like super observant of each other too. Like they, tell on each other like so-and-so is wearing the bad color and so-and-so didn't bury the bad color quick enough like they it's 
Outward is the other, but inside is like super panopticon too. <laughs> Total panopticon. <laughs> but it seems to me that part of what the message is, if you want to call it that, of the film is exactly that, that the cost of this kind of protection or false innocence is is that demonizing of the other and a kind of a self-policing. Like there is no way to get to that um, except through that kind of projection. And I, I think that's true. And I think you can see that in the difference between the two generations too. Like we're talking mm. about Kitty. I, I'm going to defend Kitty for a minute. Um, first of I all, I like Kitty. I, I do too. And I, I'm going to put on my, 90s teenager hat for a second sorry everybody um so kitty is played by judy greer uh who is the best friend in approximately every teen movie from like 1999 to 2005 uh did not know that she's um jawbreaker 13 going on 30 um is she in the craft too maybe i don't know she's in a million of those like 90s disaffected teen girl movies that I showed up on opening night for all of them. And uh, I I have to think by making her the second sister and not the main sister that Shyamalan is drawing on her kind of filmic second banana tendencies. Um, uh, Case in point, the title of Judy Greer's memoir is uh, Where Do I Know You From? So she she knows it too. Did not know any of that. Um, yeah, so he's doing that on purpose, and um, there's a reason, not only I think that she's played by Judy Greer, but there's a reason that Kitty really seems way younger than her years, particularly if you compare that generation and the way they talk to the way the older generations talk. I, I think it's on second and subsequent viewings, very clear that um, the parents are, are doing the children a disservice in terms of, of sheltering them. Like, Kitty is, what, 18, 20, and she talks like she's 10. Well, again, that's the innocence issue, but a kind of a forced innocence that's built on built on falsehood or farce, as the word is that's used often in the, t- in the film. And... And it's damaging, right? It's infantilizing that this kind of version of innocence. And the film has a sadness to it because of this sort of effort to go back to eat, right? To go back to to stop the fall from innocence to experience. That might be one of the themes that really he's playing with here is, is the effort to go back to innocence is going to fail necessarily um, for a number of reasons. But you open the scene with the death of one of the children and then the character who lost his son says, Oh, you can run from sorrow, but it always follow you. It can smell Mm -hmm. you. You know, you can't go back to that kind of innocence. You can't get away. You can't go back to the garden of Eden. I mean, that's a classic American tale. Is it not like the desire for that? It is. And I, but I, I still have a tough time being sympathetic for the founders who make this choice. And, like, maybe I'm just cynical. I'm not being sympathetic. No, I'm not being sympathetic. I'm just saying it's a classic American desire that's not going to work. I I agree with you. I don't know. I think I'm, I'm probably too angry 
at the elders, but I, I, I do. I, my immediate response is like, you had so much to work with and like, this is what you do with it. Like yeah, this, and tons of money. Like, this guy is an American historian at a Research One school, and, like, yeah. he what he comes up with is, like, bargain basement grab bag utopianism. Like, it's, it's so disappointing. <laughs> it's so disappointing. <laughs> that is so true. And, they, and I, by I mean, the way, so I could not, not do any better. I could not do any better. I want to make that clear. But yeah, it's, I'm so angry at him. Which is understandable. And I think we're supposed to, and I don't buy this, but we're supposed to say, oh, they've had all of these hurts that, that unite them together. And the hurts are so profound. And I think we're supposed to think it was from the seventies and eighties, right. That they launched off. Right. And mm-hmm. the, the, there was a really, really big difference in perceptions in the 70s and 80s versus the 90s in terms of cities and urban areas and crime and where it's all headed. Like I remember as a child in the 70s being really afraid of being robbed all the time. Like if I went to New York City, I would no doubt be in a crime. I mean, there was just a different perception about crime and urban areas. I I mean, I was fearful for, for years. And so I think Shyamalan is trying to, you know, he he is the same age as I am, basically, and he's trying to kind of tap into that. That would be their reason for wanting to completely get away um, from all of that. And But that's not available for us today. Like, that's not the way that sh- Chicago is. That's not the way that New York City is. So it kind of rings hollow. I, I think it's interesting, though, because I think that we – since the 80s and 90s, in my opinion, have become much more fearful than we used to be. Oh, yeah. Even no though, fear. Yeah. Yeah. Even though there's research that says that the crime against children is much lower than it was when I was a kid. And we roam the streets. And so many people in our generation try to protect their kids in the same way that, I mean, it's parallel in the way that they do in the movie. Well, fear is one of the main themes of the film, right? And so now mm-hmm. in the 2020, right, where we are right now, a culture of fear, one could even say, suddenly this has kind of a new revel- relevance. So I'm really interested in talking about this topic because when, first of all, when you want to create a community and you demonize the other to do so, one of the ways you do that is by building fear, but it's also because of fear that you built it, right? So fear plays a huge role in the whole thing. And when you're afraid, you try to control, right? You clamp down. And so I just feel like there's so much contemporary relevance that I think we should explore here. I mean, there are also things like uh, Mr. Walker says to Kitty that money is evil. It can be wicked. It turns men's hearts. But yet it's that very money that he's talking about his father having or grandfather um, having earned that he uses to pay the security company to protect the their society. Yep. It's it's his name on the truck still and he gets to mm-hmm. like not have any responsibility for it. Yeah, yeah, so they they don't know the kind of lower class fear that most people do, right? It's 
it's a different kind of fear that sets them off to this weird utopia. But you have to, to my mind, what's so interesting about the film is that they have to create a culture of fear in order to protect their little enclave, like fear among the the younger people in the community. They have to be afraid of these outsiders that are not really real, these monsters that are not really real, that the price of community is the creation of the fear of the other. And I just think that's so there's a way that this film accesses that that is so interesting to me, so different than the way that other things have done it. And and it's particularly interesting, too, because the outside world, at least what we see of it at the end, the um, uh, Shyamalan's cameo and the... Yes, that was so great. And the... Yeah, I am... Um, in, in a lot of his movies, I give him a lot of crap for, like, being low rent Hitchcock but the way he inserts his cameo into this movie where the first time we see the side of his face it's just in the reflection from the glass cabinet door that's that's as good as any cameo Hitchcock ever inserted and I like that's high rent yeah it is it don't don't at me y'all I I'd stand by that opinion um but so those two people, Shyamalan and the other, um, I forget his name, sweet, uh, sweet game warden guy who has like two lines. They don't really He's seem so sweet. He is adorable, precious, um, and you know doesn't want to lose his job. So uh, it's it's a, a relatable fear, his fear. But I, they don't seem to really care about these people. Like, we don't get a lot of sense that the outside world even really knows that these people are camping out in this, like, game preserve, nature preserve, whatever yeah, they are. They've been, they've been paid to ignore it, right? That's the implication, right? Well, they pay oh, off this is the a planes, so, like, the planes don't fly over, and, you know, they're told not to but, ask any questions. But it doesn't right. seem like other than some hush money floating around, like it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of questions being asked. Well, again, it's it, it, like the guy Shyamalan's character says to the guy, it's like, this is a great gig. Don't ask questions. Don't raise any issues. Just do what we've been to- telling you to do. Protect that place. So it's like the privilege of the super wealthy to have their little utopias. Yeah, that's true. Well, and that statement is also a criticism of the modern culture. Um, Correct. I mean, Shyamalan is, is, first of all, you see his face, but he's reading a newspaper. And I think there's um, headlines about like a terrorist attack or something like that. Um, and so, you know, they she comes to the outside world and doesn't really see it. She doesn't actually go to a town. But we see, you know, a newspaper and cynicism and and the the some of the things that these people have run away from. Mm-hmm. Okay, but like, she doesn't see it because she can't see. And her father sends her because it's easiest for him to send her because oh, he, he has the least to lose. Like, it's, mm, it's a cop-out, kind oh, of. It's a total cop-out. It is, and that's why I was really annoyed with that particular part of the story this time around. Edward's way of being with Ivy but on the other hand he also recognizes 
exceptional. Yeah, I mean, it could have been a lot um, worse. Like, Ivy is not Noah. Noah is not a person. Noah is just a bunch of disability stereotypes mashed together. Um, well, a- talk some more about disability in the film. I want to hear your thoughts here. <laughs> Sorry, I have a lot of feelings. No, no, of course. I mean, it's a huge issue. And uh, yeah, please go. Uh, okay, so um, first of all, the the Adrian Brody character Noah, um, who is way more plot device than he is actual character. Um, he is mute mostly, and we're we're never told what intellectual disability he has, but he is intellectually disabled. Um, a lot of reviews I read uh, referred to him as. Uh, says that he exists to to be a kind of village idiot uh, type, which is a terribly offensive term, but probably (laughs) one that would have been uh, employed in the 19th century. So fine, whatever. And he essentially exists to move the plot forward and make things happen that wouldn't really happen if he wasn't kind of outside of a lot of the social norms of their town um he's the one who stabs lucius um he's the one who um from i think a well-meaning place uh makes the monsters real for ivy she thinks she's being uh she thinks she's being chased in the woods and then um in order for her to kind of be the protagonist hero once he becomes the monster, uh, he then dies and is kind of out of the way. So uh, not really given a chance to to be a real character. Ivy, on the other hand, is a much more developed character. If if there is a younger protagonist of the movie, it's definitely her. And and I don't want to, like, I'm not down on this. I think Ivy is a great, super developed character. Um, the number of disabled female protagonists of any movie ever is, like, Indeed. basically zero. So I'm for this. Indeed. Like, I, I think it's a representational gain. Um, but when combined with how awful Noah's character development is, I think we're... Uh, we're at even... So you're saying it's a wash? It's a wash. It's basically a wash. Um, But Ivy is... She's great, and she's great partly because the film lets her embody essentially 21st century notions of disability in a 19th century setting. Um, For example, she tells Lucius... Oh, I I wrote it down because I wanted to quote this. Um, I see the world, just not as you see it. So the idea that though she is blind, she actually has a different kind of sight. Um, That's what's called the social model of disability, uh, which says that disability is not necessarily um, a hindrance, which is what the the medical model of disability would say, an older model, says... Um, It's kind of your job as an individual disabled person to overcome your disability and join, quote unquote, normal or able-bodied society. Right. Right. The social model, in contrast to that, says there's actually positives in uh, 
in disability, that it can give us strengths that able-bodied people might not necessarily see or possess. So she's... Right, like autism has a way, a different way of seeing the world. A blind person has a different way of seeing the world that right. we need. Exactly. And yeah. that, that we need, that's that's the idea, that like society is richer yeah. and, and more... Um, richer, right. Sort of more... Which I actually do believe. Oh, absolutely. I, um, I do too. But I... That is, that's anachronistic, and, like, Ivy bringing that in is one of the cues that tipped me off to, like, this is not really the 19th century uh, because uh-huh. there's no way on earth, like, they would have shut her up in a house, you know, or put her in an institution. You've just answered my question about how you as a teenager could have figured that out because you knew as yourself in the situation that this was not the way the 19th century person would have been treated. Right. No way in a thousand million years. No way. No, that's exactly right. And that just did not occur to me at that moment. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not just a millennial cynic. It was coming from it was coming from somewhere, <laughs> somewhere kind of genuine. Just a millennial cynic. I was really trying to figure out what made you able to sort of see that because I did, I certainly did not. Because um, I'm sitting there genre guessing, you know. But that makes perfect sense. Um, it's so interesting because you know her father is really progressive in that way, isn't he? Because her father really truly believes that about her he does and I think it's genuine and that like I I can't as much as I like am upset at him I can't fully dislike him because I I think his relationship with her is genuine and he wants her to succeed and he wants this um he wants this town to succeed as an experiment and I like I, I have a lot of sympathy for that even though He's so frustrating. Oh, totally. Totally. But he does truly love her. And since he loves the Susan Sarandon character, he also is conflicted about, you know, the Wait, need for the Sigourney out- Weaver. I'm oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm getting my actresses mixed up. Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> um, he's in love with her. And so it's her son. So there's that kind of interesting connection there his effort to kind of send out his daughter as a way of saying, I'm really serious about this. You know, this is the only thing that I can compensate for this. Um, I don't know. It works in some way. I, I thought the scene with um, Mr. Walker and Sigourney Weaver's character in the house where he was telling her that he was sending her and she kind of like reached out to him, which she'd done other times in the film after Lucia said that, you know, said that he loved her. Um, she kind of reached out for him. They had this moment where they almost kissed. And then he said something about, it's all I can give you. And mm-hmm. and I think like what she wanted and what he wanted to give her was love. But instead, he was giving her this gift of hoping to try to save her son and hope. So dumb question. How come they can't be in love with each other? I wonder if it's because they've both lost spouses and they're afraid. I don't know if it's any rule of the society. I always just thought, I thought it was like an internal. Oh, like a fear of intimacy. That's driving them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the way that I read it too. 
that they it was so weird like the, their whole like arrangement there and it was kind of like formalized and people were not allowed to really express their feelings i don't know but but that is an interesting question why they weren't able to explore that I guess the elders do seem to have a stricter code of conduct than the rest of the people in the town. So maybe mm-hmm. they, like, as part of their, we're going to shut all these newspaper clippings up in these black boxes that for some reason they still keep around, but okay. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah well. <laughs> uh, I think maybe part of their arrangement is, like, we're not going to speak of former emotional entanglements and we're not going to let that get in the way of this utopian project maybe that's what's happening well in a way the boxes symbolize their fear right they think they can shove it away in a corner and recreate life and at the end when the elders are all talking by the house and and mr walker is saying that he's sitting sending ivy like they you know at first they're questioning him they're asking everything like why would you do this we always said we wouldn't but then they step in and the the one man who I think lost his son in the beginning said something like the Brendan like if this is how it has to be um yeah if this is how it has to be this is how it has to be and um you know I think like he and then he points out that like his his I, I forget his dad or somebody had died in the towns but everybody else died here it's almost like they thought they could protect themselves from death because yep all of their loved ones had been murdered in the towns and they didn't realize yep, that. Yep. And so I think they're trying to lock that away in the boxes and they only bring it out when they need it to save them. Talking yeah, that's about... right. And of course it's a false idea, right? Right. Yeah. That we can somehow keep all of the pain and the suffering out there because this is a utopia. And then, no, you can't. Suffering and pain is inside here too, right? There's no sort of us versus them. It, you can't have that return to utopia. But I, I think it's really interesting that at the end, it seems like they're set up to continue. Um, a couple they of things. Are. I mean, first of all, Noah is kind of the sacrificial lamb. And they say, you know, somebody comes and runs in and tells the elders that. And then somebody comments that um, that because of his death, the people will. And then also they're talking about um, Lucius and Ivy again in that conversation with the elders when he said that he sent Ivy off. He he says it'll be he said it'll be Ivy and Lucius. And so by sending her out to get the medicine, he's preserving the next generation of leaders that will will take it on. Really interesting that they took that that theme that they're just going to continue with this. Yeah, well, that is an interesting way to ask the question. Do you think that's a positive hope ending or a sort of horrible delusional ending? But will they actually continue it, though? Like, the elders think that they will, but Ivy knows it's all a bunch of garbage. That's true, and she's smart. But she has the opportunity to tell that's true so victoria you think that this ending is the beginning of the community um i don't know i don't and honestly yeah i don't know either i don't know what i want to be true 
<laughs> well, that's what I'm asking. Either. I don't know. I mean, more stories like Ivy's, I guess, is what, like, I'm I'm willing to let this movie do a lot of things just because I think we don't see stories centered on disabled female experience ever. And it's interesting that they kind of question how communities would would rotate around that and i think that's super cool um i don't i don't know i'm not sure what i want her to do if i want her to kind of let them let them persist in their ignorance because it protects them because i i that's a that impulse to protect the people that you love is good at its core even if it's misguided i don't know it's tricky. I'm just saying the film does not provide easy answers. And that's one of the reasons why I really like it because there's nothing of course, inherently wrong with desiring a kind of a utopia, right? A, a place that you construct where you follow certain, albeit patriarchal, we won't go there, but you know, right. That there's sort of like protecting from the outside. There's a lot to admire there and not to mention the whole like no screens and modern you know all that crap so it's even more appealing in 2020 than back in the 90s or 2004 but the point is it's like it's hard to know whether you should be rooting for them or not kim do you root for them to continue um no Uh, i tell my kids all the time we don't want to do anything based on fear i know that i do i know that people do but we can't let fear drive our lives, and that's what they're doing. That's And they so can't true. escape it. Right, they can't. They're stuck in a cycle of fear, and they don't realize that their fear has created this illusions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the end of the day, I can't root for them either for that reason. And that's why I was thinking the contemporary analog to, you know, to our day where our fear is what's constructing our communities and our othering practices and the demonizing that we do of others. And just the extent to which we're ruled by fear is really kind of sad and uh, pervasive. And fear, you know, when fear rules you, then you keep secrets, right? And it was so much of the film is about secrets. And I remember Lucia's saying there are secrets in every corner of this village at some point. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, that's the way that power works, right? You you keep secrets, you construct a community, you teach everybody within that community about what they're supposed to fear. Um, and yet the young people always try to snoop it out, don't they? <laughs> the young people find a way. Another thing that I think is interesting about whether or not the society moves forward is so you've got the picture of the eight or 10 people who started this because they were hurt. But then when you see the feasts, there are a lot of people that even adults, it's not just those eight or 10 people. So I have some logistical questions about how this happened. Um, But the other thing is really only these eight or 10 people, we believe know the truth and 
as they die off and with Kitty being the only one of her generation, like yeah. eventually they will be a society that is, Oh, I don't know. Nobody will know. Right. Um, and I just think that's really interesting. And right. At, but at who would keep point? up the farce of the outfits and stuff? The, the culture, because it's become such a part of their culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At what point does the myth become codified into actual truth? Right. If if the only people who know that it is not capital T truth are dead, like at some point it is true. Right. But then how long? I mean, you're talking years, maybe months where they would just start going out of the boundaries. Right. Uh, it just could not last long. Like unless there was somebody to put on those outfits mm. and scare people, they just they, they would. The, the general interest is always what's out there, right? You can't stop that, right? You can't stop that effort to go out. It's actually impressive that they stopped it as long as they have. Correct. I mean, yeah. As far as we know, Lucius is, or not Lucius, Noah is the only one who went into the woods until it was to save somebody's life. Right. They, they did an amazing job of setting up that whole fear factor with the red, with the creature which really are creepy. I mean, Kim, mm-hmm. you're the one who most recently saw it without knowing. Were you creeped out? We, did you think they were aliens? Did you think there was a sci-fi? What did you think? Um, I guess I thought that they re- were real creatures, but I didn't necessarily think they were as hostile as they tried to make them out to be. Okay, so you thought they were real creatures, but you didn't think they were hostile. Yeah. That's so interesting. Because I guess when I first saw it, and having seen signs, I think I thought they were either alien or like this was like Puritan throwback witch culture thing, you know, like. Yeah. Can uh, and we I talk just didn't about know. Puritans for a second? Yeah, let's Be- do. Because I, I think it's super interesting that we have this separatist community that is sort of puritanical, but they don't. And they talk about God sometimes, but they don't seem to be actually meaningfully religious in, in like um, a real way. Are. Um, and, and yet they have all of these, like they have the trappings of the Puritans in a lot, in the ways that they sort of euphemize things. And I remember like the first time, I'm sorry, you guys are going to think I'm like the worst jerkiest teenager ever. And I probably was, it's all right. But I, I remember, um, seeing this in the theater in high school and we had just read the crucible in literature class. And I was like, I can't take William Hurt seriously because he just sounds like John Proctor, but dumber. Like it just, of course you just saw the crucible, Victoria. This explains a lot, (laughs) right? Because the crucible, right. Is a contemporary retelling. So that, yeah. That makes perfect sense. I don't know. Blame my high school English teacher for making me hate John Proctor. No, no, no. It makes perfect sense because the colors, the sort of, we're trying to make it very easy. We're trying to make it very clear who is evil and who is good, right? This is inside, that's outside, which is the way the Puritans dealt with things. And there's actually a literal line. I think it's when Ivy goes out. It's either Ivy. It could be um, somebody else. Um, goes out you can see like green grass or yellowish grass and a literal line and then dirt like mm-hmm. i that struck out struck me 
and the lines of the the torches mm-hmm. and the places where they're able to go and I mean you know and of course the crucible was written all about the McCarthy era which is a you know right. classic kind of us versus them othering demonizing which is as I've said the American way I've been so so deeply affected by Zach Van Berkovich's The Puritan Origins of the American Self. It's in the center of all of my teaching, you know, that we just have this tendency to do this, to define ourselves by what we are not. And and it was striking to me that Lucius and Ivy are brought together because of their fighting, right, of this other. And... She's waiting out there for him to rescue her. So it's also this kind of patriarchal thing. I'm going to stand out here and wait for my man to rescue me, rescue me. And he does, right? He comes along, saves her from this horrible other. And they're, they're binded. They're, you know, brought together um, in, in the, their opposition to the enemy. Yeah. I I hate that. I like that part so much. (laughs) <laughs> well, but see, we're taught to, you know, enjoy that because, of course, this is the way that all communities work. It's not wrong that communities work. We gather together by what we have in common, right? And we face an enemy, and that draws us even deeper t- together, right? It connects us even more. That's not wrong. Um, but in this case, it just shows you what a construction it is or can be. I just thought it was stunning uh, just seeing it the second time around after, you know, 15 more years. It was just I, I, I really grid my my admiration for what he was really trying to show there. So, in fact, let, let's uh, end on that question of just cinematography, um, filmic moments where you were struck, especially the second time watching it. Um, and I'll, I'll start out. Uh, the scene when Adrian Brody, the Noah character, is in the woods. And even the second time seeing it, I wasn't sure whether it was a, fic- fic- a fiction of her imagination or if he was real. Because I, I, I just didn't remember that it was Noah that had gone out to the woods. And I really admired the filming of that sequence because it was disorganized in a creative way really kept me guessing and then the long shot of him in the pit was so blakian um it just felt weirdly beautiful with him in the red mm-hmm. kind of curled up there i i was just kind of moved by it not for empathy for noah but just the visual i don't know i agree I thought that was a pretty scene as well. I, one thing that's interesting, I think there are some holes in this movie, and one that just occurred to me is, is that she can sense many people by color, and you would think Noah would be one of those people. So yeah. why doesn't she realize that that's Noah? I guess because she's so afraid, and where she is yeah. is just she's thinking that he's not real because she's just been told that the creatures are not real, right? Right. That's the way I read it anyway. Yeah. Any other filmic moments that stand out? Um, first, I, can I, I want to talk about Ivy and seeing people's colors um, for just a second. Yes. Uh, one, 
that is accurate. Lots of legally blind people can see a little bit, so I like that they incorporate that in because uh, it's real. And I love, love, love that uh, Ivy, when Lucius is sort of on his sick bed and we don't know whether he's going to uh gonna survive or not she is still kind of arch and playful with him and says i still won't tell you your color i that's just like mm-hmm. so baller and i love it it's great um okay so visual moments um i agree that the scene in the woods with ivy and noah is really visually arresting um you talked about blake i kept thinking that it was playing on um the red riding hood myth story um there's some some color inversion but uh i think that is one thing that we're supposed to think of especially in terms of stories we tell ourselves um, so I think that's clever, and I like it. And yeah, visually, I, I do think the visuals are, are probably the best thing this movie has uh, going for it next to the Bryce Dallas Howard performance, which is really, really great. Yeah, I, I was stunned by her performance this time around. I would say I have two themes, or two visualizations first as i mentioned early on is color um most of the people wear beige or brown almost all the time and kitty is the big exception to that um at her sister's wedding she has on pink at um there's a point where she has on a bright blue dress um there's another time when her white shirt gets red blood all over it and it just, she stands out from a color perspective to me. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then from a like moment perspective, when Kitty was standing over the hole that um, Noah was in, I think that's the moment and not the moment when she fell in it, but um, she kind of looks down and then there's this crescent shape of the the brown around the hole and looking up at her. Um, I just thought that was a really beautiful shot. What Ivy, you mean, not Kitty. I is gone, but you can still appreciate the, the ability to build suspense in that Hitchcockian way that, that Shyamalan learned from Hitchcock. Um, and you know, he learned the power of what was off screen uh, is what he's said about it. Mm. in other interviews and things. And, and I do, I actually really appreciate that because I think so much of the time, what we're trying to do in films is show everything when it's really what's not seen. That's more powerful. So any final words from you guys uh, about the film or. Uh, This is a better movie than I thought it was when I was a teenager. And I'm sorry. (laughs) I was a jerk who thought I knew everything. No need for apology, Victoria. Kim, any final thoughts? Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I would, I think that, you know, the more, it's one of those, I think the more you watch it, the more you probably enjoy it, even though you know the twist, you, you can pick up on a lot of these details that I think were very purposeful. Um, I also, um, in terms of Mr. Walker, he has some of the most beautiful lines. Um, he, mm. he says at one point, I hope I'm always able to risk everything for the just and right cause. 
And, and he reminds them that it's out of hope that they've started this. And so I don't know, even though, even though his motivation for starting it wasn't good, his motivation for protecting it, I think is, is kind of beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to, to dislike a film that has this many true stars, right? I mean, with, with these kinds of performances, I, I mean, I, I have to say it's, it's kind of just standing back back and watching the actors work was, was a pleasure in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Victoria and Kim for talking with me about this and uh, thanks listeners for listening. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. You can check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Christina Bieber-Lake and Kim Anderson, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Queen Athalia of the Bible. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things, love.